Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And this week, we are going to be talking about auras. But before we get into that, I'm going to pass it over to Fel to do our what happened on this day. And we are currently recording this on December 12th. Alrighty. So in 1719, the first recorded sighting of the Aurora Borealis took place in New England. The report said that a mysterious face seemed to appear in the atmosphere. It caused considerable alarm, being regarded as a precursor of the Last Judgment by many. But this colorful display of green, red, and frost white lights typically occur where there is a great deal of sunspot activity in the fall and sometimes again in the spring. And so I actually just got a notification about this on my phone. And I was like, oh, how cool. I thought it was super fitting. All right. Well, let's just jump in and talk about what an aura is and how do we typically see it defined within the occult community. Auras, as like everything, are I feel like not very well defined. But I actually think they're 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 better defined than some other things. Like I actually think they're better defined than say energy work or charging. Surprisingly, so an aura is basically just this unseen spiritual field that surrounds all living things. However, how do you define a living thing? You see, it's very hot right now in the witchcraft community to say that you're an animist. So by that definition, technically, wouldn't everything have an aura then? Some people do. I have seen it argued that everything has an aura. I've seen that argued too. I've seen aura described kind of in two different ways. So one is this like invisible kind of spiritual energy that like surrounds everybody. But I've also heard it described in like more scientific terms, which comes a lot of times from like the new age community. Although I have seen it kind of outside of that too. But it's this idea that it's some kind of electromagnetic field that radiates from you based upon your sweat, like releasing volatile chemicals that then interacts with like electromagnetic rays that can then be influenced by other fields <laughs> that supposedly so It's exist. like spiritual BO. <laughs> it's, it's something else for sure. So that's what I've also heard, which I think is a little bit crazy, uh, especially because your sweat doesn't necessarily release like volatile chemicals and most of the aromas produced are based on bacteria not just like your sweat but yeah I've heard both I've heard it try to be explained more scientifically but I've also heard it kind of just like a general spiritual energy surrounding people yeah the only thing I think I have to add is like the links to the sort of chakra system or western understanding of that which I think we'll get into and also like I'm never clear on whether an aura is something that is one color and like you have an aura that is green for example and it stays green for the rest of your life or whether it's something which changes color based on xyz factors in your life and it seems to be quite popular to say oh it changes colors based on you know whether you're stressed or whether you're you know spiritually seeking something and therefore somebody can tell you an aura cleanse based on that it's a little bit of a fuzzy definition as well mentioned i've also heard people talk about auras and like somebody's aura can tell you about like a physical ailment and then you can use that to like inform a diagnosis and a treatment so using it medically which is wild <laughs> but I've, I've also heard that too so kind of similar to the whole like alchemical herbalism where you're trying to balance it out and so then as you balance and you bring it back to like center whatever your original color is then you've like fixed the issue okay so now that we've defined kind of what an aura is and how we've heard it you know discussed within the community Let's talk about its history, and I don't think anybody will be surprised by the fact that it's connected to the spiritualists and theosophy. So, Fel, do you want to talk about that? 
I mean, I don't want to talk about it, but I will. <laughs> to no one's surprise, Aura is directly linked to specifically the Theosophists. Although uh, the term was coined by spiritualists in the 19th century, Aura comes from Latin, meaning breeze. There's the Aurai, which are a group of wind spirits, wind gods, essentially. But they're not related at all <laughs> to our modern concept of aura. I struggled to find like when the spiritualists started using it. Probably a lot of things happened within spiritualism and theosophy around the same time in terms of a lot of them ran in the same circles. And in fact, the guy who came up with the term or came up with the idea of auras was Charles Webster Ledbetter. Charles Webster Ledbetter was a former Anglican priest. But due to his interest in spiritualism, he had to leave and joined up with the Theosophical Society in India. Webster became an extremely influential figure in theosophy, and we can credit him with actually a lot of our New Age ideas. He specifically, while he was creating this idea of aura, it went exactly like perfectly hand in hand with his idea of chakras. So yes, our modern westernized chakra system comes from his version of the tantric chakras however he did admit to purposely changing it and and adding his own philosophy to it he combined the ideas of auras and chakras and in fact the two of them from what i found in my research are actually impossible to separate because the idea of auras was specifically made to show how aligned your chakras were which is why i think Modern aura stuff is very interesting because people try to understandably divorce it from the bastardized version of chakras without sort of realizing that I feel like they're inextricably linked. So what's interesting about Ledbetter is that he wasn't actually that, while he was very influential in theosophy, his ideas were not picked up by the mainstream theosophical society until, I believe, sometime in the 1970s. And then even more in the 1990s when we saw this big and a second boom of, of witchcraft in which Wicca and New Age kind of became intermixed. It's like, yeah, auras, and I just see this old British white man with the big long beard and that a classic mustache. If you Google Charles Webster Ledbetter, he looks exactly like <laughs> what you would think he would look like. We kind of already mentioned it and like how Ledbetter hold the ideas of the aura from um, the East and kind of bastardize it by inputting his own ideas um, and philosophies into that. But let's talk about a little bit more about what some of the spiritual traditions were that influenced the idea. And then do we see this across multiple different traditions, both in the East and in the West? I would say the idea of auras specifically comes from this idea of subtle bodies, which was a a term coined by Helena Blavatsky, who's the founder of Theosophy. We've talked about her before. The subtle body was this spiritual body, and she pulled the idea of the subtle body from ideas that are found in Tantric Buddhism, Kundalini Yoga, Chinese Taoist alchemy, Jainism, and branches of Hinduism which, again, if you know anything about theosophy, makes a lot of sense. Just very much pulling from certain mystic Eastern traditions, sort of cherry-picking <laughs> concepts from them and uh, slapping a label onto them. I really struggle to find any concrete example of auras even like in 
some of these traditions because it's so hard to cut through all of the rewriting that Blavatsky and the other theosophists did because a lot of our modern English words for these things come from the theosophists. So it's very hard if you are not already familiar with the concepts to try to dive into the the history of them. What's weird about Ares is I, I actually struggled to find any examples of them in anything other than the traditions that I mentioned. There was some uh, erroneous examples of ancient Egypt. However, that was later found to be sort of falsified archaeological records, which I believe we mentioned. Oh, gosh. I'm trying to remember which episode that was. It was the episode that I talked about Jainism. Maybe it was Astral Projection. I think it was our Astral Projection episode where I talked about the same, that same exact thing where someone falsified something about Egypt. Yeah, so I, I really struggled to find auras in, in any other tradition. Like, I think this idea of a spiritual body or something might exist like miasma i guess you could kind of see as like an icky spiritual thing that covers someone in their spiritual body but that's quite a bit of a stretch and i feel like if i were to present that (laughs) in any sort of scholarly thing i would just get like nixed immediately so one thing I think is maybe worth pointing out, and I'm going to say I'm by no means an expert on this at all, but the subtle body as described by theosophists, obviously, as you mentioned, is quite different to how that's understood in various different Vedic traditions. And in fact, the subtle body in those traditions is, is kind of made up of, of different aspects. So like prana, meaning breath and um, consciousness and things like that. So it's not necessarily just one thing. It's multiple different aspects. And so to say that it's summarized by a single aura or color seems to be a kind of misunderstanding of that in my opinion at least the subtle body this idea of the subtle body is also something you find within the hermetic order of the golden dawn who described the subtle body as the sphere of sensation israel regardi actually published a collection of texts which he states that the whole sphere of sensation which surrounds the whole physical body of a man is called the magical mirror of the universe for therein are represented all the occult forces of the universe projected as on a sphere. He also then connects the Sephiroth of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life to this then sphere as like a microcosm in the universe. So we see in the Kabbalistic concept of the Nefesh um, as the subtle body of refined astral light, upon which, as on an invisible pattern, the physical body is extended. So it's also something you see within the ceremonial sphere in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Okay, so let's talk about the science behind auras. I'm going to preface this by saying that the scientific evidence is based with neurological disorders or some neurological phenomena, but that's not to say that auras specifically are related to some kind of like mental illness or or disease. Um, So keep that in mind. This is just the scientific evidence that we have with things relating to something similar to an aura. But as with most things that we talk about on this podcast, there really isn't a lot of scientific evidence for auras in the way that we understand them kind of in the wider occult community. But there does seem to be an overlap with migraine auras and synesthesia. Before we start this discussion specifically with migraine auras, I want to be really clear about the fact that the pathophysiology of migraines remains very poorly understood clinically, but the phenomena that attributes to the 
kind of auric aspect of migraines is something called cortical spreading depression or depolarization. And it's actually widely accepted as the mechanism underlying this phenomenon in animals specifically. And I also want to clarify that there are different types of migraines. This is kind of like a generalized discussion about that. And I'm not going to get into like the nitty gritty of all the different types, but just be aware that there are different types and they don't all have aura like aspects to them. Actually, Haley, before we do that, I think you mentioned that you have experience like with this. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. So I have a family history of migraine. I nearly said of auras then. I was like, wow. But yeah, I also, I get migraine with aura. Not all the time, but the maybe 50% of the time. It is very, very, very kind of surreal, scary experience. It actually doesn't appear as a color for me. Usually it appears as something which is almost like transparent and iridescent. And it kind of comes like out from my body, if that makes sense. Very, very, very strange. The closest description I can add is if you've seen Donnie Darko and you've seen the the tunnel of light in that in that film, it's very similar to that. But I can totally understand somebody experiencing this and not understanding what they're going through because often the aura might happen way before the migraine. Sometimes it happens to me about 24 hours before I actually get the migraine. I don't connect the two yet. And I can completely understand somebody thinking, I'm having a kind of spiritual experience and then not, not realizing that until later down the road. When it comes to migraine auras, there was a lot of discussion of the fact that it's it either predates the migraine or it usually happens like after it has started. But you, there, you see both and there's not really a consensus of maybe why there's a difference in mechanism. Rodent models have demonstrated that CSD or cortical spreading depression results in a cascade of events leading to the release of pro-inflammatory mediators, activation of some nerve fibers and inflammation. But this hasn't been studied in humans specifically until recently. As of 2019, there was a group that had previously demonstrated glial activation via elevated levels of a translocator protein, which they called TSPO. And they demonstrated this with some central nervous system pain. And then so from that and from some rotomase models, they hypothesized that individuals who experience migraine with auras, or MWA for short, would exhibit increased glial activation, so a side effect of CSD, in regions involved in nociceptive processing compared to healthy controls. So nociception basically refers to a signal arriving at your central nervous system as a result of the stimulation of sensory receptors in your peripheral nervous system, which are called nociceptors. So it's essentially taking your peripheral sensations and then having that sensation transported to your central nervous system, which goes to your brain and does all the processing. In this study, there were 13 patients who self-identified as having migraine auras who were then selected by neurologists who confirmed it using a variety of different tests. And then they were compared to 16 healthy controls, all from the general population. And they did this using a dynamic radioisotopic scan. So they treated the patients with this radioisotope and scanned them with an MRI PET scanner, and they standardized the uptake values of this isotope, which would bind to the translocator protein that would have increased expression if there was an increase in glial activation. And so based on the increase of their ability to detect that radioisotope, that would then tell them whether they had increased glial activation in the brain. So the group comparisons between the healthy control and then the people who experience MWAs showed that the standardized uptake value ratios, just so people are aware, what that means, the value ratio is a number that was generated by dividing the standard uptake value images acquired during the process of the experiment 
They divided that by an average SUV from a previously established group difference region, which essentially means how different were the controls to the patients initially. So that ratio, that division, they found it was higher in the left thalamus, the primary visual cortex, and then the right and left insulas, meaning that there was an increased glial activity in those specific regions. I always find it interesting. I feel like every episode we talk about the brain, the thalamus is involved in some way or another at least in all the spiritual experiences that we've talked about. Clinically, what they compared this to was they said that it showed a positive correlation between the group with migraine or attacks and increased glial activation. So this is interesting. I like to know that there is some kind of correlation, but my issue with this paper is that even though they took great care to ensure that the demographics of the groups were as similar as possible, they ruled out like genetic alterations and some like biochemical alterations that would impact their study they're still only looking at a change between two demographics and not an actual like event we're looking at a change that maybe has occurred as a result of somebody having these migraines but not necessarily the changes in the brain that happened while the like actual migraine aura is happening in that moment and so there could be some differences there And they also then have no way to say for sure that the increased kind of uptake of this radioisotope by this like binding to the protein is a result directly from the NWAs or if there maybe is something else going on that could be contributing to this as well. I wanted to ask, it says um, increased glial activation. So do do your glial cells contribute a lot to your like visual pathways? Like how how does this connect to the actual ability to, to see something, like to see colors or feel anything like that the glial activation pathway it's part of a number of different pathways specifically but along with the thalamus they also showed that there was a a visual cortex increase as well so the glial activation does also connect to like your like visual perceptions and everything in addition to a couple of the other areas that i mentioned so i think that's what they're getting at there is that this cortical sensory like depolarization they said it starts in one region and then it kind of like spreads over your brain in in a bunch of regions and so as this is happening you have this depolarization in like all these specific areas and it affects some more than others but the visual facial region is one of those specifically i'll link the paper and you can look at it they have some really pretty like brain graphs and stuff so (laughs) do look at those it's actually really fascinating the other scientific basis that i found surrounding this is whether people who can see auras are synesthetes. So people with this hyper robust connection among different brain regions that makes them smell color, taste sound, feel numbers, or experience one sensation that overlays with another. So in 2012, there was a phenomenological trial comparing the two experiences of people with something called person color synesthesia, along with people who claimed they could read auras. We'll link this paper again down below. But basically, it was found that for the person color synesthetes, the inducer for seeing color could be any kind of like physical stimulus. So it could be a sensation, motor-based, so you know, movement, emotional recognition, or some kind of sense of familiarity by looking at the person. And so that then caused a difference in what was seen as the quote-unquote aura. Whereas they found that, and from reports they had previously read, people who can read auras just without having this synesthesia typically agree with the color that a person emits, while the people who did have synesthesia didn't always agree because it seemed like there were differences, but colors they attributed to like familiar features. 
That is interesting hypothesis to have, but it doesn't seem like there's any correlation there. Yeah, it makes it makes sense to me actually, and I think some people were suggesting that it could be related to um, the emotions of the mm-hmm. of the reader. So that um, because the, this thing is like aura reading is something that happens with people with synesthesia, but aura reading is also something that can be learned, which they seem to be kind of distinct from one another. And people are saying, well, maybe it's to do with your level of empathy and your ability to kind of read emotions, and that is then translated into like a a visual sensation but um, some trials actually looked at the empathy of aura readers and they found it was actually less than the people who, who don't so um, it's a very very small study but even even if that isn't the case I just thought it was quite funny um, I also wanted to ask do you experience any kind of level of synesthesia I, I know that it's it's a kind of particular condition but some people experience a small level of it no nope. no I don't experience I feel like it's it's almost I don't people take this wrong way, but I almost feel like it's kind of a thing for people to say that they like experience it. Like I, I, I've met a lot of people who are just like, I have, especially in the music industry, when in, in reality, synesthesia is pretty rare. I see some people say that they experience it and I'm not always sure people actually know what it is. I, def- I definitely don't think I have synesthesia, but I do have like strong opinions on what color every day of the week is do you know what i mean like wednesday right. is green do you disagree wednesday is not green wednesday See? is blue are you a, are you a synesthesia <laughs> or is that like it's weird like color associations no, kind of go along it's way correspondence for me <laughs> <laughs> that is true that is true like my name felicity is definitely red i would have put it as yellow that's because i mean i think it all i put it as red because red when i was a child was my favorite color so <laughs> Ah, there you go. There you but go. yeah, see, some things like that, I'm like, is that synesthesia or is that just having an opinion about like a color correspondence? I think there's also something to be said for people who are neurodivergent too, where sometimes there can be an overlap there. There was also an interesting suggestion that I found, which was that when people read an aura, they're really just cold reading you. And I was like, that's legit, right? Like, yeah, 100%. Yeah, like 1000%. If you go to somebody and they're like, have more masculine maybe traits they come across, or they're more aggressive in their speech patterns or their actions, like you might say that the aura tends to fall on like the red side of the spectrum. Maybe if they're a little like more calm and collective or even shy, it might fall like the green part of the, or the blue part of the spectrum, green, whatever. And so I thought that was an interesting suggestion. I think it fits probably well with like grifters and people who can cold read hello well and that's probably what they use for that but when I was a part of the new age community one of my former friends (laughs) once came up to me and was just like Felicity your aura is just pink today I was like is it and they were like, there's just like this creative energy about you. It's like really moving. And I was just like, you know what? They're in. like, it was almost like they were putting words in my mouth. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Like, they're, I am feeling creative today. Like, so it was almost like they dictated what my aura was, not because they could see it, but because this was just kind of my aura was what it said they were because it, it inspired me. And which happens a lot with like psychics and stuff. It's funny. There was an article on Pathios written by someone I won't name, um, it essentially said that the aura is the feeling that somebody has when they walk into a room, right? What you give off. And I was like, that's literally cold reading a person by how they appear to you when they walk into a room. Like that is the definition of cold reading. I was kind of just like, hmm, okay. So I think a lot of it might be a combination of cold reading and some other things. Like if you really want to give the psychics the benefit of the doubt, but I definitely think cold reading has probably offers a lot of explanations. Or even just, yeah, like you said, felt the power of suggestion. 
And like sometimes, like I used to say that I was reading people's auras, and I believed it. You know, it's just like it just becomes confirmation bias. Like when you're cold reading someone and they confirm, then it confirms your belief. Like. Okay, let's talk about our sensing, our cleansing, and our photography. We kind of already dived into it, but let's go a little bit deeper. So, Fel, I know you have some aura photography places near you. Let's talk about that. My good friends came to visit me. I, I won't name where because it'll immediately put me on a map, but let's just say it's a fairly well-known area. And they offered aura photography and I just I was so tempted to go in <laughs> I really, one of these days I'm gonna actually do it but that was actually the first time I'd ever heard of aura photography and they named a specific camera too it was something like the aura meter 3000 <laughs> like it was like a really dramatic yeah the aura meter I've heard of that yeah, yeah yeah and it uses a combination of like it in all the pictures of people getting their photographs done they like put their hand on this sensor, which I'm pretty sure is some sort of biofeedback sensor. Take a photo. But yeah, that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. I saw people were taking aura photos of their cacti. That was pretty interesting. (laughs) I am not sure. I couldn't really find how they were trying to claim that it worked. Only that you could like buy it for like $500. Adobe, (laughs) the, the website Adobe, like Adobe Photoshop, they have an article on aura photography, and I was just like, really? <laughs> really Adobe? Um, but I guess it kind of makes sense. Yeah, they had a how-to guide for yeah, aura I photography. I saw that when I was looking at it, and I was like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah channel, channel your clairvoyant side. Yeah, it says, aura photography requires some special equipment, including an aura camera, two hand plates, a dark background, and a space to shoot. The equipment itself can cost up to $16,000, so it takes some commitment. Yeah, I'll link the article. It's very bizarre, and I don't understand how the mechanism of the camera actually works because it's not very transparent. Well, good news, because I can tell you. Thank you. <laughs> so most, most aura photography centers use something called Curlian photography to visualize what they claim is the soul of an organism. And over here, it'll run you at least 25 pounds, 500 is excessive. I mean, I guess they're probably trying to pay back the cost of the camera, but that's ridiculous. But basically how it works, it utilizes some of the fundamental principles of matter. So this is the release of light when electrons are removed from atoms. So this kind of occurs on a much greater level in like a halogen light bulb, for example, where you have a halogen gas in an electric field and the electrons are ripped off and there's an emission of light. But this, this actually happens at very low levels whenever gas is discharged. So in Curlian photography, they use electrified air to visualize conductivity on a small scale, which is why you put your hands in the box, because they're looking at the, as you mentioned, the biofeedback and the um, electrifying the air within the box. Not with your hands in it, I don't think. But the image being photographed is basically placed near your photographic plate, and this captures some of the electron emission. Highly conductive areas, so this might be things like moisture content, they'll, they'll give you a brighter pattern because of the electron conductivity. And in some cases, you can get really stunning results. In particular, the reason that this was initially... Um, pinned down as aura photography is that you can take something like a leaf, for example, put it on the plate, take away the leaf and take a picture and you'll still see a kind of a, a bright ghost or aura of the leaf. And this is because of the gas discharge and the moisture from the leaf, but, uh, you know, it's the, the physical conductivity. But when this was initially found out, I think I think it was in the 1940s in Russia, might, might be wrong on the date there, they, they, were in, they thought that this was a, kind of a, a soul visualization 
Some approaches to oral photography are even less legitimate than this. So um, they don't use Curly in photography, but they just use an image processing software. And when I looked at these photos, I couldn't help but be reminded of the MacBook photo app filters you see <laughs> back in 2009. They're variously described as things like polycontrast interference photography or energy field photography. Very complicated names for something very simple. They're a visual filter which takes advantage of how the photographs are stored digitally. So when you store an image, you're also storing like an array of values according to each pixel, right? So they have things like bright values for brightness, luminosity. And what will happen is the algorithm for the polycontrast image photography will just distort the brightness values in the photograph to give you an appearance of the aura. But it's because of the natural topography of the face and the body that it appears to show an aura, right? So, and because of you know the way people's bodies are shaped, often the energy centers in these pictures appear to to happen in the place where your chakras would be, right? So your your forehead is closer to to the camera, so you often see a you know your, your third eye chakra, your solar plexus is, and so etc. So that this is kind of used and manipulated to um, to sell the photography. So I guess you could argue that the coronal discharge effect from the original Carlian photography maybe that does have spiritual significance. But how would we test this? Do you guys have any ideas? Can you just like spray water in one of these boxes and have them take a picture and then you'll see like the aura of water. Carlian photography is something that I think is just so easy like easily manipulated based on the fact that it's entirely dependent upon like moisture and conductivity, which neither thing is spiritual. Everything emits moisture or some kind of gas. Like leaves, you know, and stuff they'll emit carbon dioxide and you don't naturally have like oils and dew on it. Similar to your hand, which produces natural oils. Like I don't know. It just, I don't know if there's a way to test that necessarily because we just know that those things are true. What I think is interesting about Kirlian photography is like, I feel like there are some real, actually like interesting scientific stuff that could be done with these. And instead they're all used to take like Instagram filter photos. Like it's a very, like, I feel like there are so many implications of this that just like are unknown because all of these, all of this equipment is just in the hands of aura photographers, you know? We should really get on this as scientists. We're all the physicists who can do something cool with Carlian photography. I was thinking it would be really interesting to go to different aura photographers and see if you get the same result just as an initial test. Like, okay, if this has spiritual significance, then surely I should have a similar result. Could also maybe test it just every day. So get a photograph taken every day under controlled conditions and maybe like, take stock of things like your mood and any experiences you've had. Don't look at the photos and then look back afterwards and see if there's any kind of correlation. I mean, these are pretty weak ideas for scientific studies, but at least then you would be able to understand like, okay, um, is my aura changing every day as a result of my mood? You probably shouldn't based on how we know how this works, but at least then we would have some kind of basis for it rather than this simply being a kind of trick of electroconductance. I also found some other interesting discussions on specifically, so I finally found the name. It's R- it is, it's Aura Cam, not Aura Camera. Aura Cam 3000. And there has since been created Aura Cam 6000. I don't know why there's, why we had to start at 3000. That seems a bit extreme. So basically there's a scientist, this is, again, this I'm rereading over this Adobe article. So they're being very general here. Uh, Guy Coggins adapted the techniques 
to create his own camera, and he used algorithms, quote, developed by Coggins and his team of clairvoyants to transform electrical input into the bright colors of aura photos. So it seems to be this, like, weird mix of things that were how, like, brilliant photography worked and early comp sci <laughs> with uh, inputs and stuff, which I think kind of explains somewhat why the colors are are very much what we would associate with like the westernized chakra system because all of those colors are like your standard <laughs> RGB colors. Right, and they've probably adapted the algorithm, right, to, to give it like an output which looks somewhat aura-y and mystical, etc. Like they probably... They have some control over how the final image looks in the sense that the way the image is translated is, you know, the the algorithm they put it through is going to distort the the visual effect it has. So it's, it, yeah, it's dodgy because you can kind of manipulate this to tell a story, um, which is my problem with most of these things. It's also interesting to consider, like, our the different areas of our body are all very different, right? So, like... If you're basing this entire aura off of, like, just their hand that you put on the plate, we're only capturing kind of one part of the body. And while an aura may suggest, if we, you know, approach it in a spiritual sense, that it would be the same everywhere, would you get a different result if, say, you, like, put your face up to the camera and, like, you, you know, were breathing onto the plate? Or what if you did, like, your foot or just your arm? Like, would different areas of your body give you different results? And if they do then that says something about the reliability of the equipment and the methodology at which they're approaching. Can't seem to find any other information on on Guy Coggins, like at all, about who he was, where he came from, what he did. He was on Animal Planet, uh, to on the most dangerous animals to explain auras for some reason. I don't know why those things would be related. He basically was looking at like scientific, pho- like photography and like explaining auras. So there, there seems like to be what's weird about auras is there seems to be this like strange, odd overlap with science in a way, but like not like it's not reciprocal. <laughs> it's not reciprocal at all. No scientist is like looking at that, but a lot of the aura community embraces this weird scientification of auras. Part of the issue is that I think the kind of community that perpetuates this aura photography thing, they don't explain the science in the appropriate manner. It's literally like yeah. every new age concept, right? Like we're going to take the science and make it fit the spiritual concept instead of being like, no, this is the science. This is how it works. Here's why you're getting the result. It has nothing to do with spirituality. So it's just another example of kind of the bastardization of science within the occult community and how people are manipulating it to make it fit into something that they want to force a story. And it sucks. <laughs> so I did a Google search on Dr. Coggins and I can't find anything other than like a couple of articles where he's like listed, um, but I don't even see his like credentials anywhere. And apparently, oh, so on this article written by Wired, he apparently built a custom or a measuring device for L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, that tracks. So there you go, guys. That's exactly, yeah. He, he basically sounds, I'm willing to, here's my educated guess. Someone can find this out and figure out, if, uh, tell me I'm wrong. Here's my educated guess. This guy, Dr. Coggins, presumably 
is from or at one point spent time in California, specifically Southern California, during the 70s when all of the comp sci people were getting into the New Age movement and just went whole hog. That's my educated life guess on his his biography. <laughs> I know the type. I know the type. Not about that. <laughs> Let's talk about visualizing auras. So like we've kind of touched on this episode, visualizing energy is not necessarily a new concept. And the experience of visualizing auras could be connected to something like synesthesia. But it might also be worth mentioning the physical and visual experiences that can be brought on by some kinds of meditation or trance states and how they can interplay with the aura. So I guess the question to pose to all the hosts then is, have any of us had these kind of experiences before? I know I have. Obviously, I'm somebody who experiences migraine aura. So it's it's like maybe I'm just primed for this. <laughs> because I noticed that in a lot of the previous episodes we've looked at, a lot of these things like, oh, out-of-body experiences are more, more commonly experienced with, the, with migraines, for example. So when I meditate, it's not uncommon for me to have mild out-of-body experiences where I will feel something around me. And it's not uncommon either to see kind of bright colors and lights, but it's in my mind's eye. I'm not, I'm not physically seeing those like I would with a, a migraine aura. And I'm not bringing those to mind, but they just kind of, they come up there, I guess, from my subconscious so that I can see them around me. I also noticed that when I'm breathing in yoga, for example, my breath kind of appears to me in my mind as like a flowing ribbon. So it kind of curls at the ends of each inhale and exhale. Although I'm not educated enough about things like the subtle body to understand the relationship between these two phenomena, it's not a massive stretch, in my opinion, to, under- to imagine how these experiences might kind of feed into a popular conception of an aura. Particularly when we're, sur- we're surrounded all the time, right, by media, which shows us kind of very dramatized versions of energy. I mean, you imagine like an anime representation of, you know, somebody somebody shooting light. I think that feeds into everybody's understanding of visualization and maybe that sort of feeds back into our popular conception. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me that our it kind of all feeds into each other. I mean, anyone, most people have heard the term aura and would know what you're talking about if you said aura to them, just because of how much specifically auras are in our conscious. Like, I don't even remember when I first heard the term aura, but I remember like when the person told me like, oh, Felicity, your aura is this. And I was like, oh, like I knew exactly what they meant. I ever experienced that. I mean, obviously I used to be part of the New Age community to some degree, However, what I what I noticed is like, so for me, if I am looking at someone, usually it's easier in person and I unfocus my eyes like I can almost see colors around their body, but I would not like see that as anything spiritual or anything auric, what, what people call auric, because to me, I know that when you unfocus your eyes, your brain kind of fills in things and I've been able to look at people and like put my own color onto the, like put a color in my head in that field of, of fuzziness I also experience migraine auras not all that often but I do experience them sometimes but for me they're very like amorphous like they're not necessarily around a specific person it's just kind of like flashes of colors in the corner of my eye and as soon as that happens I'm like I'm not like wow I wonder what I'm seeing I'm like oh god get the excedrin hide under the blanket it's coming it's coming I definitely don't like I don't have migraine auras or anything but I do like when I meditate and my eyes are closed I will see like color in like my mind's eye and my vision even though I'm not like 
actually looking at anything. I do, yeah, the unfocusing the eyes is a really good point because your brain will kind of make up for the fact that you're not seeing clearly. And so it's going to try and provide you an image that makes sense. And so like Phil said, it's going to fill it in with colors. And so that's one of the reasons why like when there are certain exercises in books that tell you to like, you know, unfocus on your hand and like look at a wall, it's like that's fine to try, but like you also need to understand that your brain is going to fill in what you're intentionally removing and it's not some like I don't know removal of like physical eyesight gives you this you know spiritual mind's eye thing so anyways yeah I don't really experience anything like aura specific and I've never been able to see one like I've tried (laughs) I have tried to follow the techniques and I tried to see the auras of both myself and other people and I just can't like and you know maybe it's because I don't believe which depending upon how, you know, much you think belief has a role to play in all of this, that could be a factor. But like scientifically, it doesn't have a whole lot of backing for auras, at least in the way that we typically understand them. And yeah, nothing more than colorful spirals when my eyes are closed during meditation. I think it's also important to point out with like the brain filling in things. Like I, I remember I visited a cave in Yosemite, I think, one of the national parks uh, out west, uh, in the western United States, and they have like some really freaking dark caves where there's not no light at all, and they're all lit up now. When they take people down, obviously they're not going to take people down in the dark. The the part of the cave that we were in, she was telling us a story that for the miners, like it if their light went out, it was, it was not just like dark. Like you turn off the lights in your room. Like it is the complete and total absence of all light. Like it is equivalent to being fully blind down there when the lights are off. And she talked about how one time there was an accident and the lights went out and the men started to hallucinate because their brains, their brains needed to see something. Because your your eyes get really stressed out when you're not actually looking, like when you're not focusing on something. I just did this very interesting exercise. She turned, they turned off the lights uh, in there for us so we could experience complete and total darkness. And my eyes just went crazy. I had a massive headache afterwards because I was my eyes were constantly like trying to see something, but I, I there was no light, no ability for me to actually see something. Yeah, I, I think that's another th- important thing to know is that eyes are freaking weird. <laughs> that's it. Put that on a t-shirt. Eyes are freaking weird. <laughs> we have a dark room at work. I kind of want to try it now. <laughs> yeah. Do that let us know. It's weird. Yeah, I think that's the thing that people sometimes forget is it's like your brain is the, is the kind of interpreter of the physical sensations and simulations that you encounter every single day and so if you are being stimulated in some form but there's no like cue visual cue or physical cue your brain is like how the fuck do I interpret what's going on right like it's just it freaks itself out and so it has to come up with something um and yeah that's something important even I think like when people are talking about like ghost sensations too and that's something where like a very similar idea comes into play it was interesting actually in the scientific article that was talking about synesthesia they also mentioned um i think it's called hypergogia where it's the like you wake up at night and you see like something standing above your bed or you're fearful you're paralyzed and you can't move i think that's a neurological phenomenon very well studied very well understood and so it'd be interesting if like auras were similar to that where it's just a phenomenon it's nothing like spiritual it's just some kind of neurological weirdness that your brain decides to pull try and make sense of what you're experiencing 
I really hate that every time you mention a neurological phenomenon, I'm like, I have that. (laughs) 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 Roasting Henny. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I also want to say, like, I don't want to, I don't want to say that, like, for example, being in total pitch darkness and, like, so sensory deprivation tanks are, like, a thing where you, like, Mm -hmm. block out all senses and people have very spiritual experiences in them. I don't want to knock that. Like, I think that's a perfectly valid and, and often sought after way of spiritual attainment. I mean, we see mystics do that where they go into caves and fast like that. That is a, a valid way of engaging in the spiritual. But I think where it gets weird is when people try to like scientize it, like with aura photography, for example, to prove it in this way. And like certain things, I like auras are weird because they're very specific. Like they're very like they are one of the better defined things that we've discussed here. I think because they are very easily traced to Charles Webster Ledbetter. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely don't want people to take away that I don't think that like just because your brain is like this thing is usually cause your brain to freak out that you can't interpret it spiritually. I mean that's kind of what scrying is, right? Like human brains are meant to look for patterns. So it makes sense when you're scrying or doing tassiomancy that you would see shapes. Yeah, it's like that intersection of mundane and, and magical, I think, that people sometimes teeter too far. Either it's entirely mundane and everything is everything is easy to determine what it is, or it's ooh, it's ooh, ooh, entirely magical. And I think the circumstance is an important distinction there, right? Like your daily life versus like intentionally going into trance. So if you're going to go into yeah. like fast, like you're entering a trance state. And so what you experience in that moment is going to have more of like a spiritual influence and impact on you because of the environment that you've created to, to allow yourself to experience that versus like not being in a trance state and, and trying like seeing these things in a more mundane manner like if and that's one of the interesting things about like at least for me this is so off topic but I'm gonna go there anyway like being a scientist and a person who's spiritual like when I deliberately put myself into a trance state or like um, a ritualistic space where my kind of headspace is shifted and my framework is being changed a bit to allow more of like a spiritual understanding of things I'm not looking at that necessarily from a scientific aspect and not at that moment. But similarly, when I'm in the mundane and the day-to-day, while I do think that small things in life are magical in their own way, I'm also not going about my day-to-day life with a spiritual framework, within that like ritualistic um, frame of mind that I have when I'm actually performing like magic. And so it's important, I think, to distinguish, right, between the environment in which you're having these experiences, not trying to validate spiritual experiences from trance in the mundane specifically like with science kind of like you were saying so anyone else have any other thoughts uh no pretty much yeah i i also just want to emphasize that i don't want to just like shit on anybody who has like a synesthetic experience for example or who uses energy visualization that kind of thing but it, the problem i really have is when people like try to use the scientific explanation scientific explanation to to sell something like that's that's really the bugbear for me, and I don't I don't want you to get scammed. I want you to listen to this and understand that you can put your your image through a MacBook filter and get probably the same results. So um, yeah, just um, stay safe out there. Don't get grifted. 
You can pick your aura. We should we should do that in the Discord server. Everybody pick a color and that's your aura. Or we could ask what our auras are. If anybody, if you're listening to this, what color are we? Yeah, what color <laughs> yes. are Cold read us based on what you see in the in the Discord <laughs> or how we come across. <laughs> I would I would we should have a, an episode where someone cold reads us. I think that would be fun. Or we cold read each other. I'd be down. That'd be wild. <laughs> I suck at cold reading, though. Like, I can't read a room for the life of me, so don't ask me to cold read anybody. I'm very um, good at cold reading, so. Okay, well, we'll have, we'll have you do it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that closes it out for this episode, so we will see you next week. Oh, before we go. So if you are not following us on Instagram, you can do so at Testings and Cauldrons. We post um, hints for upcoming episodes every single week. Um, and then we also let you know when the episode is officially live, usually on Friday, sometimes on Saturday, depending on when we get our act together. And then we also have a Discord that you are welcome to join where we talk about the occult and science. Sometimes we host journal clubs where we talk about a specific paper. People are always linking things in our Discord to papers and, and you know, asking for discussion about it, which is always super fun. Um, so do feel free to join us there. You can find the link in both the YouTube description and then also um, the episode description to join us and i think i got everything so with that we will see you next week bye everybody